continuing through our journey in the book of Exodus, really kind of up until now, the life of Moses. And, um, and what we've been doing, you've noticed, because there's various ways that you can teach through the Bible. You might, we, we could have done Exodus in four or five weeks, doing big chunks. But we've, we've decided to go for um, more of a, a, a scene-by-scene, scene, more of a play-by-play, play, looking at smaller chunks and discovering along the way some of perhaps these, these more lesser-known stories and accounts. We know the big stuff. We know the parting of the sea. We know the confrontation with Pharaoh, let my people go, all that kind of stuff. But how about some of those kind of smaller, stranger, weirder passages that we're going to kind of discover this morning? Um, but hopefully in these smaller accounts, we've been, we've been learning some lessons. Lessons around what it, what it means to be called by God. Lessons, what does it mean to belong to the family of God? And this morning, and this is kind of just giving you the, the main thrust, the main idea of the passage this morning. What does it look like to be the people of God and to have good character, godly character, um, people of integrity? What does it mean to be, and this is probably the one phrase that I want to leave with you, um, when we truly understand and believe that God is more interested not in in, in just competency and capability and gifting, but in character. And that's where we're headed this morning with this particular passage this morning. So to bring you up to speed really quickly, Moses has had this wrestle with God, this back and forth. Moses is like, God, I'm, I'm not the right person for this job. But now, where, we, where we're up to in this passage, it seems like Moses is now ready to finally submit to God Submit to God's plan. Submit to God's will for his life. He's ready to go to Egypt, which is what God, God calls him to go. Go to Egypt, talk to Pharaoh, let my people go. He's ready now to do it God's way. Remember, we, we saw this a couple of weeks ago. We kind of, we have a tendency to want to, okay, God, I'll listen to you, but I'll do it my own way. No, now he's ready to do it God's way. Ready to confront Pharaoh. Get, God, get him to set God's people free. And so this brings us to our passage we're up to this morning in chapter 4. We're going to be starting in chapter 4, verse 18. And here's the thing. What you would think is that where we've seen Moses come up until now, you would think, okay, he's ready, God, I'm, I'm ready to go to Egypt. Boom. You'd think the story should now go straight to Egypt. Moses is in Egypt. He's ready to submit. He's going. He's ready to be obedient. Chapter 5 starts that way, but then we have kind of wedged between this account, these verses. Perhaps some of the more strangest verses in the whole Bible, they're a bit weird, like what do they mean? This is exactly why I love to study the Bible in detail, why we love to slow down. Because it means we're not going to miss these seemingly obscure parts of the Bible. And it means now we get to do our best to try to explain what some of it might mean. With this particular section, um, it's almost like God is saying, Moses, I, I love that you're ready to go and be obedient. I still have some more lessons for you to learn. Moses probably thought that saying yes to God was enough. But God is like, Moses, there's, there's still some things in your character. 
maybe even some sin to forsake before I'm ready to use you. And I believe God is wanting to teach us some of those same lessons as well as we seek to follow Christ, to serve God, to be the people of God, and to be involved in the various forms of ministry and service that you and I might be involved in. We're going to see that God takes some of this stuff very seriously, very seriously. So let's get right into it there in chapter 4, and we're going to start in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Go in peace. You have my blessing, in other words. So we see Moses, he's on track, isn't he? He's on track to, to go to Egypt. This was the first thing he needed to do as part of his preparation. Go and talk to Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, here's where we're already seeing, for us, perhaps, a lesson in great courage. It is one thing to talk to God about the plans that he has for you and his family. It's, it's a whole nother ball game to go talk to your father-in-law about the plans that God has for you and your family. I mean, Moses is essentially telling Jethro, I'm taking your daughter and your grandchildren and we're going far away and we may never come back. He does the right thing. He does the right thing in doing it. This would have been necessary in a culture where it would have been expected for the father-in-law to give permission if you were wanting to move your family away or take them anywhere. But although it was necessary, believe me, um, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy, and I speak as someone who literally had to go to their father-in-law and say, I'm taking your daughter and your grandchild, and we're going very far away, and we may never come back. It's not easy. There's a bit, pretty big difference, though, in how um, Jethro responded and reacted to how my father-in-law um, responded and reacted and granted he wasn't a Christian so he didn't get this whole idea of us wanting to serve God with our whole lives but this is what he said quote you will go and make a family over there but you will be leaving one destroyed over here that that's that's what um welcome to the family you know hey that was kind of how it, it, it played played out not the kind of conversation um it's not how I was expecting it to go that's a story for another time. But what I do want us to notice is how Jethro responds to God's plan. His response was much more gracious. Go in peace. You have my blessing. And I think there's, I think there's a lesson for us here. Not just for, for those who are perhaps like Moses, you, you, you sense the call of God on your life to, to go, to go to the mission field, maybe to get into to full-time ministry or any service to God for that matter. But I think there's a lesson here also for the parents of those people. I wonder if you would be willing to say to your child, go in peace, you have my blessing. Go in peace, you have my blessing to go to Bible college. Go in peace, you have my blessing to go to the mission field or to become part of an internship at your church or some ministry. Go in peace. You have my blessing to take my grandkids 
to an unsafe place in the world on the mission field. Go in peace. How do you think you'd respond if you were Jethro and it was Moses coming to you and it was actually one of your own kids proposing this? You'd think, here's the thing, you'd think that Jethro's response here would be the usual, the natural response from Christian parents. You'd, You'd think this would be the natural response from Christian parents when their child comes and they're saying, look, I want to I take a path that might be different to the path that you had planned out for me. A path that may not lead to the great wealth and success that you had planned from a, a worldly perspective. It's not always the case, even with Christian parents. I've known friends who were missionaries or gone into ministry and it wasn't their response, even from Christian, their own Christian parents. I think you'd be surprised just how many even Christian parents are more interested in their kids accumulating treasures here on earth than in accumulating treasures in heaven. It's a reality. But now on the other hand, let's come at it from Moses' perspective. I reckon Moses serves as a great example of for Christians who are trying to hold these two things in the balance. How do I, how do I love Christ first and foremost with all my life, but also love and respect and honor my family, my parents. He goes about it the right way. He seeks to honor his mother and his father, in this case, his father-in-law, by seeking his blessing. And by God's grace in this scenario, he gets it. He gets the blessing. That's, like we just said, that's not always going to be the case, even with Christian parents, especially from non-Christian parents. What do we do in those situations? That's the question. What do you do? You sense, you know, you hear the calling of God on your life. Do you not go? Do you honor your parents by following them and their desires and their will and their wishes? This is where it gets kind of tricky for us, doesn't it, as Christians, as believers? Because here's the thing for us Christ followers. Jesus told us that our commitment to him always comes first. It always comes first. Let me, let me show you a verse in the Bible. Jesus himself speaking these words. It's from Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I, I remember speaking and these words and sharing these words with our brother Rex. You remember Rex when he was wrestling with, do I get baptized or not? It's not easy. It's not easy. It's, they're awkward. They're hard. I, I was sitting in a cafe yesterday morning um, preparing the slides for this and I had a kind of big splat all over my screen and there were like people close um, watching my screen and they're like seeing if anyone doesn't hate their mother or father. It's like, what, what is this guy on about? Is he some kind of cult? He's trying to get people to to hate their family and follow some religion. Like, it's not easy to try to understand what he's saying here. But here in these words, Jesus isn't at all telling us that we need to be hostile to our families at all. That's not what he means. That would be to contradict everything else that Jesus teaches us about love and honour. Christians should treat their families with love, honour and respect. But what he is saying is that following him will be a total, total life commitment. It demands an absolute allegiance that sometimes is a reality. Sometimes it's going to 
go against your own family's expectations. It might, it will. To the point where even the people we love the most, even the people we love the most, mother, father, children, brother, sister, whoever, even the ones we love the most should not prevent us from doing what God has called us to do. I think the clearest example of this in the Bible, outside of Jesus' words, is in the book of Acts, in the New Testament, when we have uh, Peter and John, who were before some authorities, and they're being told, you're not allowed to teach about Jesus anymore. You're not allowed to go. We're, we're, holding, we're preventing you from serving your God and teaching about Jesus. Do you remember what their response is? We've got a slide. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. And I think what, we, what we're seeing here, even from Moses, serving God, these aren't mutually exclusive, right? Serving God never excludes loving, respecting, honoring our parents, asking permission, getting their wisdom, their input, making them feel part of the process along the way like Moses does here with Jethro. But ultimately, I think this is the point, Ultimately, we must never forget that our allegiance, our commitment, our obedience belongs to Christ first and foremost, always. We keep moving along. Because that was just one verse we've looked at so far, verse 18. We move along. Verses 19, 19 to 21. Can we show those slides? And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. We're going to be talking about that hopefully later on, about the staff of Moses. Pretty, pretty important. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Oh, hard passage. I wonder if you've ever felt this way about a family member, um, a friend, someone you know, where you've wrestled with God about them, and you've been, God, this person has seen you at work. This person is, is I'm sure of it, they've seen the way you've changed my life, or the way you've, you've changed people around, like, like, I have this wrestle with my mother-in-law, for example, who's, you know, um, Maru and her brother are the only two Christians in the whole of their extended family. And it started with the brother-in-law, and it's like, she's seen the grace of God, the power of God in their lives. My brother-in-law was kind of um, just short of having an addiction to drugs. He was the furthest away from God, and then drastically, he gets saved. And like, deep down... How could, they, how could they continue to be denying your power and your good? Why don't they believe? What are they waiting for? Why don't they turn and trust in you? What else do they need to see? I wonder if you've ever felt that way about someone. And here's the thing. People seeing the work of God firsthand for themselves and yet choosing to deny Christ time. That, that's been going on since the beginning as we're seeing here. That's what God tells Moses is going to happen with Pharaoh. Pharaoh will see the miracles, but he's going to refuse to let the people go. This happened in Jesus' time too. 
We're told in the Gospel of John that, and we've got a, a verse here on the slide, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Though he, Jesus, had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Even people, God himself in the flesh was the one performing these miracles. And even that, being Jesus, that wasn't enough for them to believe, for many to, to believe. How do you explain that? I guess that's where we're going with the question. Like, how do you explain? Someone could see Jesus performing all these miracles. The ten miracles that Moses performed. How do you explain that? I think we get a hint, an explanation of that in Exodus. Whether it's a family member, whether it's people in Jesus' time, whether it's Pharaoh here, we can never underestimate the hardness of people's hearts to not believe, right? Even in light of so much evidence, even in light of so much revelation to the point, and I truly believe this, you could show them all the miracles in the world, all the changed lives in the world, but nothing will move them from their determination to reject God. So determined to not submit to the Lordship of Christ that they will gladly go through all of life, all the way to the grave, denying Him, denying Him. Like some of the most well-known atheists have, right? You, know, you often hear of these, these deathbed conversions and people love to say, oh, they, they, they had this deathbed conversion right before they, they died and then they... But s- some of them, like, all the way to the grave, denying. Famous one, Stephen Hawking, Christopher Hitchens, and in, and in all likelihood, someone like Richard Dawkins, unless God has mercy on his soul before he dies. And these people will probably tell you that their rejection of God, it's not something spiritual, it's not something religious. It's about reason. It's about facts, evidence. It's about, it's about being rational thinkers. But what we're seeing, we see through the Bible, that's, that's ultimately not, it's, that's not what's at play. The human heart doesn't like to submit to anyone. The human heart doesn't like the idea of anyone telling me what to do. The human heart doesn't like the idea of anyone else sitting on the throne of my life that, that isn't me. Really what these atheists are saying, in other words, is I won't believe in any of those gods, those fairy tale gods that you guys, why? Because I want to remain the God of my own life. That's what's at play. But the question is why? Why does his heart remain so hard? And this is where it's going to continue to get uncomfortable for us. Because let's start with Pharaoh. Notice what happens with Pharaoh's heart there in verse 21. God speaking, I will harden his heart. God was the one hardening Pharaoh's heart in some mysterious way. Hardening Pharaoh's heart was part of God's saving plan for his people. We say mysterious because how do you even begin to, to try to explain this? On the one hand, you have God hardening people's heart so that they remain in their unbelief. But on the other hand, they are still going to be found culpable and guilty for their unbelief. How do you explain that? How do you reconcile those two things? 
I can't. You see, this is, we're entering into territory here that's way of, above my pay grade, right? It's, it's trying to understand and explain the mind of God and His sovereign purposes. This idea of Pharaoh's heart being high, it's going to be a major theme throughout the book of Exodus. Somewhere like 18, 20 times we're, we're told of Pharaoh's hard heart. And here's the thing. At times we're told that he is hardening his own heart. Other times we're told that it's God hardening his heart. And what we need to understand, and I believe accept, that both of these statements are true. They're not in contradiction to one another. Pharaoh's own desire and will is at play here. He had no desire to let the people go. But at the same time, it was God's sovereign desire, God's sovereign purpose and sovereign will that was governing and ordaining the choices that Pharaoh would be making. This is the mystery we have in even our own salvation, even today. Right? As human beings made in the image of God, we, we make a real choice, don't we? We make a real decision, a real choice to either accept or reject God. Think, think about back to your own experience, your own conversion. There was nobody kind of forcing you to, I don't know whether, how it was for you, put your hand up to accept Jesus, to get baptized, accept Jesus, whatever it was. You, you made a real life choice, decision in that moment, right? But even then, Again, we're just going from the scriptures here. Even then, that choice was being governed by God's sovereign and eternal will. God had ordained it and orchestrated it for it to happen the way it did, when it did. How do you explain those two things happening at the same time? We can't, but it's true. We don't want to get stuck on this idea, though, of election and predestination. Happy, more than happy to talk to any of you about that stuff in more detail. But here's where we do want to focus our attention now. Why? Why does God harden Pharaoh's heart? And I think we get a glimpse of an answer in verses 22 and 23. Please read along. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. Here's what I want us to notice, contrary to what guys like Richard Dawkins and these guys might want you to believe, um, about why God does these kind of things. He, he isn't some moral monster, Right? Um, sitting up there kind of playing some cosmic game of, you know, Russian roulette, saying, okay, let's, let's see by chance whose heart is going to get hard, who's gonna, who I'm going to choose and reject. That's, that's kind of not how he's operating on that kind of, the way we want to think about it. Everything has a reason. It had a purpose. The reason here that God, we're told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Get this was to prove his love for his own children. That's why God hardens his heart. He's wanting to, to kind of put on show just how much he loves his children, the extent he would go to, to show his love for his children. 
the children here described as his firstborn son. And already, I think I, I did as much research as I could going back to Genesis, this is the first time we start to get this idea in the Bible of the relationship that God has with his people, one of father and child, father and child. And you know what these verses, I believe, that we just read? They seem to be at the very heart of the entire Exodus story. See, let's try and think about this. The whole Exodus story is a story of a father's love for his only son. Can, can you see? That's why God cared so much about what happened to Israel in Egypt. Why? Out of all the nations in the world, he went to the trouble of rescuing them from slavery. Why? Out of all the nations in the world, God had chosen them and loved them. Can, can you see how this relationship where he talks about my firstborn son helps us to understand why the judgment on Egypt would be so harsh? Because did you also pick up on those verses? We get a preview to the plagues that are about to come, especially the worst of them, the last of those plagues that would claim Pharaoh's firstborn son. See, Pharaoh's heart would grow harder and harder and harder to the point where the only way to get him to let the people go would be to claim the life of his own first son. You start to see the themes that keep popping up over and over. The shedding of blood was necessary for the saving of the people. These themes that keep pointing us to Christ. Ultimately, I want you to think about this. Here's what perhaps... God's biggest problem with Pharaoh. What was God's beef with Pharaoh? See, to Pharaoh, the Hebrews, the Jews, the Israelites, they were merely just slaves that Pharaoh was using for his own use to fulfill his own purposes, being made to work for Pharaoh. But can you see what he was preventing by doing so? Pharaoh was preventing Israel from serving their father. He's preventing Israel from... Notice what God says there very clearly. Notice there in the Bible. Let my son go. Why? So that they may serve me. Let my son go so that they may serve... Let's not be mistaken here. The goal of setting them free wasn't so they could leave Egypt and live however they wanted to and just do whatever they wanted. The goal of setting them free was to serve God. That... That's what true freedom is for the people of God. It's to serve Him. It's to serve Him. That's why the Apostle Paul over in the New Testament can say things like this. Can we show that slide? Romans, again, another hard verse to understand. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. I wonder if that's how you think about your own salvation. For Israel, they were being set free from serving one master in order to serve another master. It's just that this master is a much better master. He's a good master. And he's more than a master. He's a master who loved them and who was also their father. So can you see now it becomes a joy to serve this master because he is my father who went to the lengths that he did to grant me this freedom. 
Let me ask you as Christians and as people, the people of God today, is this how you view your salvation and your freedom? Freed from sin, but not freed to kind of go out and live however you want, but freed to live a life of service to God, freed to live a whole life of submission to a good master. That's why God goes to the lengths he did with Pharaoh. And let's continue now, because we're running out of time. And I did want to get to this last extremely weird section of the Bible. The scene drastically shifts now. We go from God having a conversation with Moses to God trying to kill Moses. Just like that. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. It's a very strange interlude we get here in, in the kind of the flow of the story. Because um, Moses, is, it, it, God's talking to, to Moses, and then after this, it just continues, like we, Aaron enters the picture, and then the, the plans continue to, to head to Egypt, and then we have wedged in the middle here this little account. Why is it here? Let's take a closer look at what seems to be going on. See, Moses is headed to Egypt. Moses is on God's mission. And so he stops to camp for the night. Him and his family, they, they camp. And while camping, we're told God tries to kill him. Just when it seems safe to return to Egypt, out of nowhere, God seems to become angry with Moses. We're not told how God tries to kill him, but the, the real question isn't how does he try to kill Why? Why does he try to kill him? What possible reason could God have to want to kill Moses at this particular moment? At this point of the story, it doesn't make sense. Moses was the one who was called to lead God's people out of Egypt. The whole plan seems to depend on Moses, so why try to take him out now? Jeopardize, perhaps, the whole exodus. So here's where, given what we do have, we do our best to give some explanation and i think i think the simplest explanation is this god was about to put moses to death because moses had failed to circumcise his son we're not told that explicitly but i think implicitly by the fact that moses isn't killed god leaves him alone why because of the actions of zipporah his wife she circumcises their son and then we're told god leaves him alone it seems extreme, it seems extreme, but I think now it gives us the point of this strange little account. Think with me for a second. Circumcision. Circumcision was the distinguishing mark, wasn't it, of God's people. A sign of the covenant that God had made with his people. A sign that you belonged to the family of God. And so if Moses intended to serve God, 
the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, with whom God made this covenant with in the first place. If he intended, get this, to lead the people of God, well then Moses had an obligation to keep the covenant, to circumcise his sons. See, here's where we're going with this. Moses had to set the example. If he was going to lead the people out of Egypt, he himself had to keep the covenant fully, in full obedience to God. But for whatever reason, and we're not told why, Moses hadn't fully kept the whole covenant because his son wasn't circumcised. And so in other words, from God's perspective, Moses wasn't walking in full obedience. Full obedience. And God takes issue with that. He takes that very seriously. And here's where I believe it, it gets very practical for us. Let me start wrapping up now. Maybe the, the, the music team can, can make their way up. Get this. I love how one author puts this as I was reading and doing some research. God was not prepared to use someone with a speech impediment. Get that? God was prepared... If that's what it was, if it was a speech, we talked about this a few weeks ago, if it was a speech impediment or a disability or whatever it was. But God was prepared to use someone with a speech impediment, but not prepared to use someone with an obedience impediment. Can you see that? It's almost as if God was saying to Moses ultimately, Moses, you're not good at speaking. You know what? We can work with that. Moses, you're not, you're not comfortable in front of people, hey, look, we could even work with that. I'll send you some help. I'll send you your brother, Aaron. Moses, you've got a sketchy past. I can deal with that. I can handle that. I've dealt with that. I still want to use you. But if you're not going to be a person of integrity, then I guess I'll find someone else. And I think God shows that he's prepared to find someone else by the fact that he almost takes Moses out and kills him. He took issue with it and he takes it seriously. And I think that a story like this shows us the kind of people God desires his children to be. People who understand that a godly character is much more important, important than your capabilities. Character over competency. Character over giftedness. People who understand this, this very biblical principle that obedience is better than sacrifice. Someone who understood this was an old Scottish pastor, a man by the name of Robert Murray Machane. Uh, maybe some of you, if he's got a famous kind of daily reading plan, that's, maybe you've heard of his name. He once said about himself and about his own ministry, what my people need from me most is my own personal holiness. What my people need from me most is my own personal holiness. Not his gifts. Not his eloquent preaching and writing, which apparently he was really good at. Not, not how good his vision and strategy for growing the church could be. What my people need from me most is my own personal holiness. My godly character my walk with Christ, 
dads in the church this morning amongst us. You know what your family needs most from you? Is your own personal holiness. Mums, do you know what your families and kids need most from you? Your character, your personal integrity. Your work colleagues, your classmates, your friends. You know what will speak as great, if not greater, than some eloquent gospel presentation that you can give? Which is important. People can't get saved without hearing the gospel to believe. But you know what will speak as loudly as that? A changed life. A life transformed by the grace of God. A person of integrity who walks closely with Christ. Moses had a mission to do as you do, as I do, we all do. But for God, character always trumps giftedness. It trumps even calling. And when we continue to serve God, get this. This is Roy preaching to Roy now, okay? This is, this is I wrestled with this all week. When you continue to serve God or lead a ministry without a godly character, without personal holiness and integrity, without a good, clear conscience that you are walking in full obedience to God, it seems that God takes issue with that. How that plays out, that's between you and God. I don't know. I know how it played out for Moses. But he takes serious issue with that. See, for some of us, it may seem very insignificant. Um, Such an insignificant issue that God was willing and prepared to kill Moses for. Circumcision? It wasn't even Moses' probably own circumcision. The circumcision of his son? Something probably no one would ever have known about. Right? But the point is God knew. God knew. It is said of um, Michelangelo, you know Michelangelo, he, he painted the Sistine Chapel, that, and, and he painted it while lying on his back for hours endlessly. And he would lie on his back close up there for so long because he tried to take such care with every detail. And apparently a friend asked him why he worked so hard on details that would be viewed from so far away, from such a distance. After all, the friend said, who will notice if it is perfect or not? Michelangelo's reply, I will. I will know. I've heard people say things like, you know, Christianity isn't about rules or laws, or regulations to follow and obey. Well, that's not entirely true, is it? The bar and the standard for holiness and integrity for us has been set quite high. It's the very person of Christ. He sets us the example for us to follow. What is true, though, is, and here's the good news, it is also Christ who is the one in Christ, through Christ, that we find grace and forgiveness for when we fall and fail. But we don't lower the standard. We don't lower the bar of holiness. We walk in the spirit of Christ to not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. So let's this week, as God's people, as the children of God, as the people of God, let's this week be like our brother Job, who I was reading about earlier this week. You know what it says of Job? 
a man that was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Maybe we can reflect on that as we sing.